You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to The Washington Post. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor here at The Post. We're going to start our conversation with, uh, about digital inclusion with Christina Ishmael, deputy director of the Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology. Christina, welcome to The Washington Post. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. So digital access is pretty fundamental to all parts of daily life um, and for broader participation in society. How is access to that digital life a key component of education? Yeah. So in March of 2020, when their doors shut to the physical school buildings, we um, sent kids home and moved into an emergency remote learning situation. Um, we realized at that point, of course, uh, that not everyone had home access. And of course, we had been working in this space, especially within education and within educational technology for quite some time. The FCC had been working on this prior to the pandemic as well. But it was that moment that we knew we needed that continuity of learning to continue and provide some sort of stable learning environment. And uh, not everyone had access to do that. And so that was that moment that we have certainly um, looked back on and and been able to uh, provide as, as many resources as possible to um, state education agencies as well as to the local school districts and then community-based organizations as well. And so there have been big investments um, to help with the home access divide. Uh, and that is exactly where we are now. And so we, um, through the FCC's Affordable Connectivity Program, we know that about 50 million households qualify for free and kind of reduced price with that stipend um, that they are providing through the ACP, but only 17 million households have signed up for it. So there's still that massive gap that we are trying to actively work with educators, with school districts, um, with those community-based organizations to help adopt um, that affordable connectivity program to ensure that they are connected at home. You said 17 million have not signed up. Have signed up. Have signed up. Have signed up. But how many are you hoping to sign up? Well, we would love to hit the 50 million. <laughs> right. So why So why only 17 million? What, what's Awareness the issue here? Awareness is a huge issue. Awareness is a huge issue. Um, the other thing is it is a federal program. And um, it has a finite bucket of resources as far as the dollars. And so once the money runs out, Congress would have to appropriate and allocate more dollars towards that. So we have a lot of folks that are hesitant to sign up for something knowing that it could possibly end. Um, and we also have communities that don't necessarily trust federal programs, and rightfully so. Um, but we need to make sure that we are engaging with the community-based organizations to come alongside them, provide multilingual resources, because that's also another concern is that we are only providing resources in dominant languages like English um, and Spanish now. But we, we definitely need to make sure that we're as inclusive as possible. So as a result of its importance, many equate digital access to being an essential right. Mm-hmm. Um, do you agree? And if so, who's responsible for building out that infrastructure to provide yeah. access to all? I do. And that is going to be something that requires intense collaboration with multiple agencies. Again, we work very closely with NTIA, the National Telecommunications and Information Agency, out of the Department of Commerce. They're the ones that received the $65 billion um, from the bipartisan infrastructure law that was signed by President Biden in November of 2021. Um, $65 billion sounds massive, but we know it's not enough. Um, So we are helping support that. The FCC also has the Affordable Connectivity Program. We know that the White House is paying attention to this, the Office of Science and Technology Policy. 
again, many agencies, and we can't do it alone. So we do need those partnerships with state agencies, with the school districts, and then those community-based organizations. All right, let's talk more about this $65 billion, because okay. that is a, that is a, a big, uh, big number. Yep. Are there specific outlays for schools or other educational institutions where the funding would have substantive impact on students and their learning. Yep, so it is split. Um, there is about 42 billion, so weird to say that number, $42 billion that is going towards some different programs, and then about three billion that is going towards the um, state digital equity plans. And so that's where we are right now as far as impacting education most specifically. So states applied for this planning grant last November, and all 50 states, six territories, and almost 500 tribes applied for this and received funding to develop a digital equity plan that would ensure this home access. Whether they are learners in early learning, like I used to teach my, my preschool and kindergartners, to adult learners. We know that everyone needs that access. So they're in the process of developing their digital equity plans. Those should be posted by June, July by the state for public comment, and then they need to be wrapped up by October, November, and then they move into the next phase of grants that are more about the implementation and the capacity building within each state. So education is not actually called out as a specific population. Mm -hmm. And so we've been trying to bring that forward. We work very closely again with the digital equity director, um, Angie T. Bennett uh, at NTIA and saying, okay, education, please make sure that we're there. <laughs> right. And so we've put out a couple of resources and, and um, introduced a lot of folks to a state broadband officer, to the educators and to the educational agency. So I just want to be, just so that I'm clear. So yeah. this $3 billion for state equity plans. Yep. And you have to you have to go to the guy and say, hey, don't forget about education. Yeah. So I just want to make make sure I'm understanding <laughs> this right. You're competing with other interests over this three billion dollars for the state equity plans. Yeah. Okay. So there are there are considered covered populations, and they are called out. So it includes folks that are experiencing homelessness. There are folks that are um, migrant workers. Different populations, mm -hmm. but education was not called out specifically. So we're trying to advocate to make sure that education is included. Got it. So because of the proliferation of technology like cell phones and computers, yeah. and a lot of it um, is so intuitive. The assumption is that students are self-taught, mm. but how are students learning digital, digital literacy? That's a very good question. Um, we know that there are definitely differences between someone like in my generation that grew up without the internet and then halfway through my education experience got the internet. You know, remember dial-up. Um, and so that is, that is definitely a difference for, uh, for the new generations that were born digital. Uh, however, we also know that they are passively Ten, like most often, passively using that technology, not necessarily actively using that for creation and collaboration. So this is something that we're working on as far as professional development for teachers to create those instances. Um, but digital literacy is part of the definition of digital inclusion. And that, again, comes from the bipartisan infrastructure law that defined, for the first time ever, digital equity and digital inclusion. So it was codified in law, and digital inclusion is connectivity and devices, instructional content, so access to those resources, because once we take away the physical textbooks, if we can't be in the classroom, what do we have access to? So making sure that we have access to those instructional resources, and then the digital literacy plays a huge part of that. 
but um, it is not exclusive to the students. Of course, there are things that we can do in the classroom to ensure that students know how to navigate um, different types of devices and websites and, and the use of the technology. But we also know that given the fact that we were in the pandemic uh, and needed that support from families and caregivers, we also know that our families and caregivers and communities need those digital literacy skills. So let's talk about um, access mm -hmm. to um, devices, to broadband, because not all access is the same. No. Um, there are the students who have unfettered access to broadband, the technology to take advantage of it, and more importantly, the money to yeah. pay for it. Yep. So surely this exacerbates the, the digital divide. What educational advantages do those students with unfettered access have? Mm -hmm. And then we're gonna talk about the folks who don't yeah. have that unfettered yeah. access. The unfettered access is a, is a really good point, and we recognize that in more affluent communities, that is where we see it. Um, those that are in lower socioeconomic status uh, or free and reduced price lunch are not able to necessarily um, access that at all times, and then that impacts not only their ability to participate in learning, but also then that continuing learning, because we know that it does not stop you know, after the school day. Mm -hmm. um, and so we see uh, students that do have that unfettered access being able to take advantage of programs that are available online, um, after school, before school, summer learning programs, things like that. And so we would like to continue, obviously, to get access to those that don't so that they can also take advantage of those, those opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so then those students who don't have unfettered access, let's say they aren't ever able to access all of those resources. What's the fear of what will happen to that cohort of students? Mm -hmm. We're, we're very worried about students falling behind. Um, and we have tried, we have invested so much money through our relief dollars and um, brought in kind of wraparound services, whether it's community schools where we have before and after school programs, our summer enrichment programs. Um, we can offer as many of those as possible, but when they step away from a school campus or any sort of um, physical place that has connectivity, we know that they, automatically lose access. And so it is a concern of ours um, across the board, whether they are in K-12, higher education, or even adult education, um, that they need to continue to push for um, ubiquitous access. I have a question here that is more like is supposed to come later, but I want okay. to ask it now because you know the school the school year is about to end. Yep. Many districts are, are about to close for the summer, and many of the students in some of these districts they're given school provided laptops or yep. phones or tablets, yep. um, which will have to be turned in. Yeah, how much educational attainment or connection to the wider world is lost? Yeah without access to those devices or, or to the internet during the summer. Yep. So that has typically been the case, especially for school districts that have been a one-to-one, -one. so one device per student um, pre-pandemic. That has been pretty um, consistent as far as we turn our devices in, we refresh them over the summer, make sure that they're ready to go for the next school year. With the pandemic, we are seeing more school districts say, we will take it for a week instead and be able to refresh a certain amount and then be able to give it back to students. Mm -hmm. Because we also know it's not just the students that are accessing those school-issued devices. It is a loss for the entire family most often. Um, and so we want to make sure that they are continuing to get that access. So again, we're not necessarily saying take them all away. And we're actually encouraging more school districts to say, can you please continue to provide that access to those devices? So we were talking a lot about what you're doing, what the Department of Education is doing, what the administration is doing, the mm -hmm. federal government is doing about all this. I'm sitting here wondering, 
where's the private sector? Mm. What's the role of the private sector here? We've worked very closely with um, some of the largest internet service providers, and so has the White House as far as getting commitments from the ISPs um, to be able to provide those packages that fall within the $30 range that is part of the Affordable Connectivity Program. So if you are not familiar with that, the Affordable Connectivity Program is a $30 stipend. That is the easiest way to describe it. Um, if you are on tribal lands, it's up to $75 a month. So you apply for this if you qualify for um, services such as Medicare, Medicaid, um, SNAP benefits, or in our case for education, free and reduced price lunch for our students, then you automatically qualify for this program. Again, this is that awareness building. <laughs> yeah, uh, I didn't know about this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, I don't have kids yeah. in school, so I wouldn't know about it. But okay. I'm sure there are lots of people who are watching right. online right now who don't realize right. this. Right. Yes. Tech.ed.gov slash ACP. Say that again. Tech.ed.gov.gov. .gov. Slash ACP. Slash ACP. We have all the information there for you. Go on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that you all are going to visit our website. Uh, <laughs> so the, the White House was able to firm up commitments, and the FCC, I should say, um, were able to firm up commitments from the largest ISPs, the internet service providers, to provide specific plans at that $30 price. Um, when the pandemic first started and all of the ISPs were trying to provide their own kind of um, coverage wherever they may be, there were limitations to those plans. There was a data cap. There was, if you had a previous balance um, as a former customer and you couldn't take advantage of this program. So like they've eliminated as many obstacles as possible and that has been a commitment that the, the private sector has made for a lot of, for our, excuse me, for these households that would qualify. I'm sitting here wondering, and I don't know, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but how much of the, how much of the country actually has access to broadband? That's a really good question. Um, I would say that the FCC has the most current data mm -hmm. on that. They released a broadband map um, that is also kind of crowdsourced. You can actually go out and look at your connectivity rate wherever you may be. If you have a mobile device or if a laptop, you can actually then inform them if it is accurate or not accurate. Mm. And so the FCC has that map um, with more specific numbers. <laughs> you know, that, was, that was pretty good for being put on the spot. You actually had an answer. <laughs> I appreciate that. So you mentioned a moment ago that you, you were an educator yep. before you joined the Department of Education. If I remember right, you said Kindergartners? Preschool. Preschool. Yeah. Pre and kindergarten. Yeah. Pre preschool and kindergarten. <laughs> okay, as an aside, which was easier, the preschoolers <laughs> or the federal government? <laughs> Which one is easier? Hmm. <laughs> so the funny thing is, when I moved into uh, the like the state ed tech director role after leaving elementary school, I was like, oh, they're just children in bigger bodies. Okay. Uh, so that <laughs> I'm just gonna go with that. <laughs> okay. All right. So then, how does your then how does your experience in the classroom inform what you're oh, doing now? So much so. I am incredibly grateful for my classroom experience. It helps inform any of the policy that we're doing within our office, but then also the policy across the entire agency. Um, for example, you know, talking with my colleagues in the Student Privacy Policy Office, we are very concerned about who has access to student data right now. And they are working on some new um, kind of regulations around language 
for FERPA, if you're familiar with that. Um, and we had the conversation, gosh, it's been well over a year ago, where they said, here's what we're thinking. And they presented the language. And I was like, OK, so if I were teaching kindergarten, this is how I would interpret that. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what we were thinking. I was like, OK, this is how I would interpret that as a practitioner. And so it's, it's those types of instances that I'm like, mm hmm, yep, very grateful for my experience. You know, you just had something that, um, again, I did not realize when you're giving a tablet um, to a student, yep. all of their the data, what they're searching and what they're doing, the, the data is going somewhere. Can you talk a little bit more about the concerns about access to student data? Sure. So um, FERPA, if you're familiar with HIPAA, that is for medical purposes. FERPA is for education purposes. It was actually signed, I believe, in 1972, long before educational yeah. technology or technology used in any sort of classroom. We were looking more at paper-based records and who had access to those. Now we have to consider educational technology and who has access to that. So many school districts, in fact, I believe um, the current data shows, um, according to um, Learn Platform, shows 1,400 ed tech tools on average for a school district. Hmm. Uh-huh. 1,400. Many of them do the same thing. <laughs> so we have to make sure that we are being very um, conscious of our student data that is part of that. So that means that those ed tech tools have access to things like student information, the first name, the last name, to be able to use different accounts. I used a program whenever I was teaching kindergarten that helped with reading. And so each one of them had their own name, their own username that they would click the button on and then go on and, and do their reading um, and practice uh, for like reading fluency. And so that means that they had access to it. And so we have to be very careful as far as how we are having those conversations. It requires us to really look at terms of service um, when we are going to procure the actual technology itself um, and making sure that we're not giving away too much personally identifiable information or PII. So in the two minutes or so we yeah. have left, um, <clears throat> I'm a genie. And I'm going to grant you oh. one, one wish. Oh. If there is one thing you could do, if I indeed were a genie and I could make this happen, what's the one thing you would do right away to um, affect change, however you mm -hmm. define it, um, in the work that you're doing? Ooh. Um, I think we need, it's the infrastructure. Uh, the infrastructure has to be there in order for us to get to that digital equity and that make sure that everyone has access. And it's not just access at schools, it's access at home. And so, again, the FCC and um, NTIA are working on the physical infrastructure, the, the actual fiber that we can run to native populations, more rural areas. And so it has to be the infrastructure. Like, if I could magically do that, the pipes are already in the ground, everyone's connected. Okay, so we've got a minute and 45 seconds left. I'll give you, I'll grant you another wish. Okay, so you've got the fiber in the ground. Okay. Then what's the next thing? The next thing is um, time for our professional like educators to learn and practice with the tools to make um, technology-enabled learning happen. Okay, you get a third. Because I'm a journalist. <laughs> Journalists like things in threes. If you ever notice in a story, it's not really a story until there are three examples so there are three. to okay. point to point the reader. So, so it, it's almost like a five-paragraph essay then. Here we go into, uh, yeah. Okay, so I would say the third thing is, um, oh, gosh. Instructional resources that are also available 
Um, I firmly believe in open educational resources, which are those that do not have a copyright attached to them. Um, so they allow for a customization and localization. We know that textbooks are written for four large major states. Um, I did not teach in one of those states. I taught in Nebraska. So that was not helpful for my kindergartners who are learning to read to see about skiing Hmm. when they had never skied. So it's, um, it's access to more of those instructional resources that can then be customized for our, our local context. Christina Ishmael, Deputy Director of the Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology, thank you so much for being here thank today. Thank you so much. Um, and don't go anywhere, either in this room or watching online, because my colleague Damian Paletta will be here shortly with our next guest. Stay with us. Good morning, I'm Damian Paletta, Deputy Business Editor here at The Washington Post, and welcome. Uh, joining me now to talk about digital inclusion, finance, and the global economy are the United Nations Development Program's Gina Lucarelli and the International Monetary Fund's Tommaso Mancini Grifoli. Gina Tommaso, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Um, Gina, I was going to start with you. Um, part of the work that you do in, with your team at UNDP uh, is to, you work on solving some of today's most pressing issues through innovative strategies. And one issue that you've worked on is reaching the unbanked populations of the world, something that we've been talking about as a you know, global community for years. Mm -hmm. Start us off by talking about the challenges with reaching the unbanked populations and how digital access is a potential solution to these issues. Well, thank you so much and really great to be here um, on behalf of the United Nations Development Program, which for those of you who don't know, um, we're part of the United Nations. We accompany governments on their quest to deliver on the sustainable development goals. Um, and we've also doubled down on um, financial inclusion and innovation um, as ways forward. So I was talking to our team what we've, uh, in South Sudan uh, a bit recently. Um, and they were talking to me about some work, so a very small scale experiment that they've done in a remote border town where there are no roads, no electricity, um, you know, no banks. Um, what they do have is mobile phone coverage and this um, village savings mechanism that what women do is they put whatever money they have together in a box called sanduk um, in Arabic. And, and they basically loan it out based on who they decide needs it and at what interest rate, et cetera. What our UNDP Accelerator Lab team did is go in and study the process, study the community practice, the sort of grassroots practice, digitize it, and now um, the uh, mobile money company, the one mobile money company in Sudan, um, M. Garouche has taken the insights from this very small scale experiment and now scaled it up to build out commercial mobile wallets for village savings groups as a new service offering. So you can see sort of this is how, this is how you can take a situation where people don't have bank accounts, they don't have access to internet, they can't borrow, they can't save, they can't do transactions. In, in fact, they tell me to do a transaction, you not only have to send money to Khartoum, uh, but to Cairo in some cases. So it's, it's, it's a massive cash-based economy. You've got trucks of cash being driven around wildly unsafe mm -hmm. um, for fires, for theft, for, for everything else. Um, and so the, what we're trying to explore is if taking cash out of the equation and using this mobile money transactions can help uh, people grow businesses and foster entrepreneurship. 
Tommaso, the IMF looks at these issues from a macroeconomic perspective. I think by one count, more than a third of the global population has never even used the internet. And yet over the last three years, the shift to digital banking has been very dramatic and swift. So who's being left behind as a lot of places make progress? Are there countries that are being left behind in areas that we should kind of focus on to bring them up to, to what the rest of the world is doing? Yeah, absolutely. The environment looks very, very heterogeneous. Hmm. Uh, some countries are much more advanced, some very, very far behind. South Sudan, you were just speaking of South Sudan, has 6% of the adult population with bank accounts. That's extremely low. That's on the, on the very low end. Um, in the same category of low-income countries, Uganda has a banking sector penetration of about 66%. Uh, so a lot of variation. Um, a lot of variation within countries between different groups, but also between countries. And when we think about financial inclusion, it's important to think about this at the micro level. So to think about people. Uh, who have access to payments, who have access to uh, saving mechanisms, and then from there, that's the first step of the ladder, from there get access to credit and insurance, managing risks, right? Very, very important. So that's the micro approach. But then there's a macro approach that thinks about the, the differences between countries. And we speak about the digital divide, and that's what we're trying to bridge. And um, I think the IMF has an important role to play in this space. A lot of the, the problems with the digital divide comes down to capacity, sufficient capacity to leverage technology, to regulate technology, and to create an environment where the private sector is incentivized to provide solutions. Um, so the IMF, through its capacity development programs, tries to help countries build sufficient capacity uh, to deploy, regulate, and, and create a, a positive environment. So this means going to countries, working with uh, governments uh, directly, bringing countries together to facilitate peer-to-peer -peer learning, um, and working with other organizations such as the World Bank, uh, UNDP, and others uh, to facilitate the funding of projects. Tommaso, I just want to follow up on that too because I think the micro versus macro component of this is so interesting. On the one hand, it's great to help a family, a village, you know, get the access they need to, um, to get to the next level to, you know, expand what they need. But on the other hand, how do we convince country, countries and communities that there's a great macroeconomic benefit to helping, you know, not just one village, but 12 villages or 100 villages, 100 communities, towns, cities? How, how do we understand what the macroeconomic benefit of this is if we can scale it out? Yeah. So uh, very clearly, uh, we've shown that financial inclusion is good for growth. Mm -hmm. So growth benefits. Why? Because you're bringing in more people into the economy. You're allowing people to smooth consumption. Uh, you're allowing people to manage risks. So it's good for growth uh, up to a certain, there are decreasing returns to scale, of course. One of the reasons why they're decreasing returns to scale is because greater access to credit can undermine financial stability if credit grows too quickly without the proper regulatory environment. Uh, so we have to be very careful to manage that. Uh, other uh, attributes of financial inclusion, so access to payments um, and, and to savings, uh, of course, do not uh, undermine financial stability at all. But it's really the credit provision that we have to be careful about. Gina, I was wondering if I could ask you, so you, I mean, what you described in South Sudan is fascinating, but I imagine each um, community, each area poses its own challenges. Is there a way to scale some solutions to other countries, or do you have, really have to be creative in every single situation? 
Well, I think the first principle you need to do, particularly with digital inclusion, is the mistake you can make is thinking that, you know, sort of the ones and zeros of computers are going to, you know, lift us all out of poverty, right. empower women, and, you know, get us on a more Educated, sustainable path, yes. right? Obviously, that's not the case. So what we try and do is really learn from uh, communities themselves, right? Understand the practices that govern things. So in the case of South Sudan, understand what are the savings practices, what are, what's there to actually build on, um, and and then take it from there. So it's about, you know, people closest to the problem are closest to the solution. Learn from them. See what they're already doing to solve their problems, because they're probably already, uh, they're impatient. They're not waiting for, you know, all of us to come and sort of deliver uh, poverty, deliver the amount of poverty. They're, they're taking action. Then you've got to take it and extract those, you know, heuristics and rules of thumb. And what is it that we can learn from the village savings mechanism in South Sudan and take to Senegal? And what can we learn from Kenya's experience with mobile money and actually build on that so that we, um, so that we, yes, take the benefits but also learn the mistakes. So the the idea of peer-to-peer -peer learning is really key. You've got to solve the problems closest to where they are, but then sort of facilitate that you know exchange learning the good thing about the digital age of course is that you know um, there's a big default on open source sharing and creative commons and so there's this focus on you know we can still make money off of ideas that are shared freely right and and that's something which is very promising so um, so that's something where you know you can build digital platforms that can be used in one country, um, and then with a couple of tweaks here and there, can be used elsewhere. Tommaso, I think during the pandemic we saw the kind of global community rally to help a lot of developing countries when it comes to healthcare, you know, vaccine access and that sort of thing. And it was quite noble to see how everyone came together. I wonder if you think um, that spirit can be shared with digital inclusion. You know, is there a way that countries can understand that? in you know healthcare food things like that are seen as basic human rights housing but digital inclusion could also be something that it should be possibly seen as a human right as well how do you feel about that and how can the global community come together to help develop that yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I think the IMF has, again, as I was saying before, has an important role. And we, we try to facilitate that mm -hmm. exchange. We try to facilitate the peer-to-peer -peer learning between countries. Uh, we try to facilitate the, uh, the agreement of, on certain standards. Um, to, so, that, so that, for instance, cross-border payments can be made at lower cost. So cross-border payments uh, is an area of, of great inefficiency. Cross-border payment costs are in the high teens, almost 20% between some countries. Extremely high cost. That limits uh, commerce. It limits trade. Um, and that's an area where countries have to come together to solve a common problem. We're starting to see that. We're starting to see, for instance, uh, uh, bilateral links between countries. So recently, Singapore and India have, uh, after many years, have managed to link their payment systems. So now you can make a payment in a split second between Singapore and India at basically well, about 3% cost, so much lower than before. Um, and this is starting to spread. So this experience is starting to spread. 
There are uh, several countries thinking about a common platform uh, where they can tie their payment systems together uh, to improve cross-border payments. So there's a lot happening. But international organizations and standard-setting bodies uh, have a very, very important role to play to um, facilitate both the exchange of, of information and lessons, but also the development of common infrastructures uh, and common standards to facilitate payments. Gina, we started by talking about unbanked, and it's interesting, I think, when you think about that term 30 years ago, you would think about a bank branch. You know, if we could just get people into banks, mm. all their problems would be solved. Clearly, there's not going to be bank branches in all areas of the world. There might be hundreds of miles from where people live. Some folks have never maybe even been in a, a bank. How does, can you just walk me through what does it mean to get someone who's unbanked into the financial system if they don't have a bank branch? What are the kind of steps that you can take to get them into the financial system in a place where they can feel safe, they can trust their money mm. is there when they need it, but you know, they don't have to interact you know, with an actual bank teller? Right. I think that's, that's critical because it's not just the physical in infrastructure of building a building as a bank, but it's also how much you believe your money is safe right. when, it's, when it's there. Um, so so I, I, um, let, me, let me talk to you about uh, Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe is a good story there, I think. We've got something promising, very, very new, but, but I think really, really exciting. So Zimbabwe has a largely informal ec economy, which means that people start up businesses. Um, the people that work there aren't necessarily protected by labor rights or social protection, and they're probably not visible to the tax system. So it's a massive uh, part of the economy. The informal economy is largely uh, the economy in Zimbabwe and other parts of uh, the global south as well. Um, so you've got in rural areas, you know, less than 40% of people have bank accounts, right? 40% of adults even have ever had it. And there's a history to that and there's a reason to that. One of the things that we're exploring is how do you take people who've never had a bank account, you know, small share farm holders, um, and get them access to formal financial services in this context of a very informal economy? Uh, so what we're exploring doing is actually cr uh, using kind of the digital trails created by mobile money payments um, and other, coupling that with other data on weather patterns and commodity prices and basically creating kind of an alternative source of data as a proxy to determine credit worthiness. So at UNDP, we're going to be working with Stanbic Bank on this exploratory work to see, okay, can you take people who've never had a loan in their life, so they don't have a credit history, use these alternative sources of data and assess credit worthiness and build out from there. Because I would think if less than 40% of adults have bank accounts, a much higher percentage have mobile access, right? So that yes. would... Feature phone mobile access, not exactly. smartphone access. Yeah. Exactly. Tommaso, go ahead. I was just going to jump in because this question of data is really, really interesting. When you and I go to a bank to get a uh, credit, we pledge collateral. And we are very fortunate because we have collateral to mm -hmm. pledge. But what if you don't? What if you don't have anything to bring? Uh, you might have data. And the, the new uh, trend, uh, the new possibility, let's say, is to pledge data instead of collateral. And the data might show that you, you run a small business. Uh, it may be very, very small, but at least it shows that you have a constant inflow of revenue. It might show what your expenses are. Again, they may be very small, but they're a little bit smaller than the revenue that you get. And with this data, you can show that you're profitable. So that's great. On the other hand, you reveal a lot about yourself. And so there's a trade-off between efficiency and fairness. 
So when we go to the store and we want to buy, I don't know, uh, frozen pizza and beer, and then we stop and think twice and say, hold on, maybe I should get water and broccoli because I can improve my credit rating. Um, that <laughs> Not have as much fun, but it, sure. You know, less fun. But, but of course, it comes down to uh, uh, how much information you, you're willing to share, how much information you have to share if you don't have collateral. So it brings up a lot of interesting uh, dilemmas that we need to think about more broadly than just from an efficiency standpoint. I think this is so interesting to hear your perspectives on this. And as we talk about data, I mean, I'm wondering from the UNDP and the IMS pr perspective, we have to make sure that the recipients of this benefit are not being taken advantage of, right? I mean, I think there's a long history of you know, financial programs in countries that take advantage of people who don't understand, you know, who's on the other end of the deal. So can you talk a little bit about the role that UNDP and the IMF could play in making sure that these things, these systems are set up in ways that treat people fairly, humanely, and also protect them, you know, on the other end of this, these credits? Well, innovation is, you know, naturally always going to run ahead of regulation right. and, and, you know, the, the legal frameworks that we have. That's naturally the case. But I think the trick is, um, you know, having this sort of interactive relationship between where we see innovation and data and tech going and how we choose to regulate that. What we see, uh, what we're excited about are, you know, opportunities where you might be able to do, um, create what they call a regulatory sandbox. It's like a, you know, legal experiment let's say, so that that way you could actually start to see, okay, as mobile money grows, uh, one of the dangers is, of course, um, you know, replicating the danger of people with not a lot of money being very vulnerable to predatory lending. Right. Mm -hmm, exactly. So if you, you know, I mean, all of us know if you, you know, your first credit card, the, bill, the statement can be can be a real shock. Right. So so what you might want to see is sort of experiments where governments can go, okay, how can we um, encourage you know startups in the private sector to innovate and create these new digital inclusion services while we also protect not only people from predatory lending but also what happens with their data um, that's sort of the trick is that the experimentation and the growth and the innovation needs not only to happen in the private sector but also in the public sector as well Tomaso can you talk a little bit I mean I imagine that one of the challenges could be if if I don't have a bank account, my parents didn't have a bank account, their parents, there's a cultural reluctance to trusting these new ideas, these outsiders coming in with, oh, just, you know, we're going to help you give us your money, we'll, it's all going to be on your phone, don't worry. Talk about making sure you can break down those cultural barriers so that people feel comfortable, because once people feel comfortable and then the neighbors feel comfortable, then everyone can kind of get involved and you can build some real momentum. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you bring up the question of trust. Right. Trust is very important. So I remember well an experiment in Egypt where the uh, government um, uh, required banks to open accounts for official, uh, for government employees, and, and uh, the, the salaries were deposited in those accounts. But the first thing that many employees did is they took their money right out of the bank accounts into cash because it was a lot safer. They didn't trust the banks to keep the money in the vault. The question of trust, right? But I think it's important to take a step back and to think about what is very, very important here in this space is to be very clear about what the hurdles are to financial inclusion. There can be many. And once we understand the hurdles, then we can do a better job of improving financial inclusion. So we can think about supply-side hurdles and demand-side hurdles, for instance. Right. Supply-side hurdles being banks refusing to service uh, some customers because it's too expensive. Demand-side hurdles might be lack of trust uh, or perhaps uh, services that are too expensive, that are perceived as too expensive. So 
how can we tackle uh, some of those hurdles? Uh, then the question is private or public sector? And there's a range of possibilities. You need to access services, you need to have uh, money, so you need an issuer of money, and you need a network over which to trade the money. Where do you place the, the cursor along this continuum that, that will separate what the private sector offers and what the public sector offers? Different countries have taken different approaches. In some countries, the whole thing is private. Uh, take China where you have large uh, private companies that issue the money, uh, that give you access to this money, and that uh, settle it for you, Alipay, for instance. Uh, or you have, in India, a public-private partnership, where the public sector offers the infrastructure over which these, uh, the money is traded, but the money is issued by the banks through private wallets. And then you have the possibility of a central bank digital currency where the state provides you with the money that you can, you can trade. Um, and that is a very interesting new possibility that might have uh, very beneficial effects for financial inclusion. Gina, we'll just, we just have one more minute, but I was wondering if you could send us out on a, on a happy note. Talk <laughs> us about a um, community or a project you worked on where you saw the needle bend. You saw the community embrace it, trust what was being done, and the positive developments that um, came about because you know, the digital inclusion worked. Yes, well, I think we mentioned India before, right? And right. The, the transactions between Singapore and India. Um, there's some exciting work. It's early days, and one needs to be cautious. But, um, you know, spices in India are big business. It's about a uh, $3 billion a year industry wow. export-wise and domestically $1 billion. But the problem is that local farmers are not seeing the benefit from that, partially because they're dependent on aggregators, and it's a complex value chain where, you know, everybody takes a cut, and there's asymmetric information and um, and partially because it's you've really got to take care of those chilies and turmeric to make sure the moisture content is right at every stage of the process. Um, and so you've got this value chain where there's many moments when things can go wrong. Um, our UNDP Accelerator Lab started to work with the Indian Spice Board to look at how you might use blockchain technology um, to actually um, increase the trust along the supply chain route and create um, data which through the digital ledger, uh, digital ledger of blockchain is immutable, right? So you can see what's happening at every stage in the value chain. They can see where things go wrong. It's gone well so far. It's promising. It started to kind of reduce the fear of crypt, you know, cryptocurrency, let's right. say, and a cryptocurrency-based tech. Um, the Spice Board is ready, ready to take it to scale. They're going to move to eight more states and bring in you know, more spices. Cardamom and ginger are coming online. Um, but it's but it's encouraging because you can start to see again uh, not only you know this reduces the burden of the spice board to do you know inspections and to go out and check that everything is going well you might one day get to a point where farmers uh, we can buy directly from farmers right through smart contracts Incredible. and forget and you know reducing that reliance on the middleman well can i have 10 seconds yeah please. a second smile on your face yes please 40 percent 40 percent of the people globally making payments digitally today did so for the first time during the pandemic. So we wow. used to think that the future was far ahead. The future is here. There are opportunities, and I think uh, that hopefully will put a smile on all our faces. Yes. It certainly will, will uh, make work for us. That's excellent. Uh, to improve uh, financial inclusion. Well, what a great conversation. Tommaso and Gina, thank you so much thank for, you. for joining us today. Uh, that wraps up this panel, but there's much more to come. So please stay with us. We'll be right back. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsor. 
The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Jean Meserve. It is great to be with you. We've been hearing all about today how critical connectivity is to education, to finance. We'll be hearing how important it is, of course, to healthcare. And what could be more critical to connectivity than industry? So I am pleased to have with us here today Kathleen Grillo. Kathleen is Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Government Affairs for Verizon. Great to have you with us here today. Great to, to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So Kathleen, we've heard a couple of different perspectives on the digital divide, what it means. How does Verizon view this? Yeah, so from Verizon's perspective, everyone should have access to reliable, high quality, affordable broadband. This is a really important priority, not just for government and policymakers. And we've heard from Christina uh, about the importance of that in the education space, but obviously that's our business, right? We sell connectivity, we wanna connect customers, delight our customers. But it's really important for people to have access to broadband to really participate meaningfully in society. So we saw that during COVID, I know you've heard about that before. Millions of people, once the lockdown started, were able to continue life in some way the way we had before, right? We could talk to our doctor, we could communicate with our families, we could watch Netflix, we could get information from the government, we could get information about you know, vaccines online. And there was a whole group of people who did not have that ability. Who and, and that lack of access really deepened the isolation people who lived in rural areas felt or people at the economic margins. We've been focusing on that issue, and, and me and my policy role have been focusing on that issue for a long time, but COVID really brought it home. And I know we're gonna talk about this later. We kicked off really a lot of activity by the federal government and the private industry to try to come with solutions to help solve the problem. So there's been discussion today already about some of the barriers to access. What are you doing to try to address those? So it's, the digital divide is obviously a complex problem. Why don't people have broadband? It's really three reasons. They don't have access, meaning it's not available in their neighborhood, they don't have a network, they can't purchase it, they can't afford it, or they don't have the digital skills to use it. So we're doing something in all of those areas. On the access side, our 4G LTE network connects 99% of the US population. And 4G LTE, it is fast mobile wireless service. We are rolling out 5G, so hopefully all of you, or some of you at least, have that on your phones right now. And there's a really exciting innovation coming with 5G called fixed wireless access. So we have a product called 5G Home, that you can get, it really substitutes for traditional wired home broadband. So it's a connection that you can get between 100 and 300 megabits you can buy in your house, you just buy a box, put it in your house, and it can get you high-speed broadband just like your cable company offers you. So what this means for Verizon is, and I don't know if most people realize this, but we really only serve with wired broadband, our Fios product, 10 states on the mid-Atlantic up to the east, on the east coast. So with fixed wireless access, we can actually serve customers high quality, affordable broadband. It's $25 for most customers. No data caps, no contracts. Uh, and that will really help us penetrate more in rural and suburban areas where people have maybe one option or maybe no options for getting broadband. Yeah, how, how much of the country has no option when it comes to broadband? And it depends on who you ask. So I do think it's important, the, the stat I mentioned about 4G LTE, 99% of people can get access to you know, pretty high-speed mobile broadband uh, on their phone. So they can do a job application or 
maybe they can do homework. But you know, it's not the kind of access that at least what we're talking about when we talk about broadband at 100 megabits or, or faster. So there's about, depending on the speeds you use to measure, probably between 15 and 20 million people still don't have access, still can't purchase it and can't buy it. So affordability is a problem for some. What are you doing about it? So a lot on affordability. And a lot of this, like I said, was really kicked off post-COVID. So before that, the, the programs or the, the broadband products that were available to customers, um, to lower income customers, were sort of tailored. They were lower speeds, lower capacity, kind of tailored for that particular um, kind of customer. And Verizon, after COVID, launched our Fios Forward program. So this is a high speed, 300 by 300 megabit broadband service that we offered to customers who qualified at $30 per month. So as Christina was mentioning before, the Affordable Connectivity Program is a subsidy program that the federal government launched post-COVID that gives a $30 subsidy to customers who qualify. So with a $30 high-speed, reliable broadband product and a $30 subsidy, most customers now, most of those 17 million customers that Christina mentioned, can get broadband at no cost because of this Affordable Connectivity Program. She mentioned how many people are eligible for that program, yes. but not participating in it. The figure was quite startling. Yes, well, that it, it was just launched, so it's relatively new. It's about it's about a year old, and the federal government now is really launching up a, a information program to really make sure that people know about this and the people eligible can get access to it. We're participating in those efforts. It's a big priority for Verizon and for my team in particular to make sure that people get the word out about this program and the benefits that it brings. Because to get you know, 300 by 300 megabits broadband service at no cost, that didn't happen pre-COVID. And it's, it's really a pretty historic not everyone has devices. Is Verizon assisting in some way in that realm? Yes. So part of our uh, work with, we have a Verizon Innovative Learning Schools program where we provide devices to 3 million students across the country in a really expansive program that we've had for 11 years. Um, and that's part of that as well. And what about digital literacy, teaching people how to use the technology effectively? Yeah, that's another big priority for us. So in addition to the Verizon Innovative Learning Schools, that program that we have set up, so that provides devices, connectivity, and very specialized um, expertise and curriculum to students. We also have a program that helps small business owners get online. So that's another really important aspect of the digital divide. To have a small business to really grow and innovate and expand, you have to have broadband access. You can't, you can't really launch a small business without it. So we have a program that provides business owners with personalized mentoring, online courses, and expertise to help them figure out how to use a high-speed connection to really launch their business. And there's 150,000 customers. So what would that. you say, from where you sit, is the biggest benefit to providing more access to these technologies? For, for consumers, you mean, or just for society? I mean, it's really everything. When you think about it, you can't really have a meaningful experience as a citizen without broadband, right? You can't get information on candidates. You can't express your First Amendment rights, your opinions on things. You, you can't get information from the government. Um, not in the same way as your peers. And it really, to participate as a citizen with a meaningful life and to be healthy and vibrant, you really need broadband. And that's, that's why we're so committed to this 
So Washington is a very fractured place. Um, everyone in this room well aware of it. How well are Congress, regulators, and industry working together to address some of the remaining issues in this area? About 18 months ago, Congress passed a law called the, Infra, uh, the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act. So this is the big law that you all know with the billions of dollars for bridges and roads. But a huge part of that is for broadband, both for access and affordability and digital equity. That was a pretty historic achievement. I mean, we had bipartisan agreement during a crisis to come up with a lot of money. $65 billion is a lot of money for broadband and these issues that we've talked about today. So that was, that was a lot of progress. We hadn't seen something like that previous to. And the government now is really doubling down on implementing that. So how are we gonna get that money out to the states so that providers can build networks in areas that we don't have it? And what kind of programs, like Christina talked about, are we gonna have for schools, for libraries, for community institutions, for healthcare institutions to try to help use broadband in a way that's that's, that's significant. That's a big deal. And so I'm encouraged. Uh, as Christina was mentioning, there's a lot of partnership with the government on, on the affordable connectivity program. There's going to be a lot of activity and involvement from industry on how we implement these programs. So I've been working on these issues for probably 20 years. And we've been talking about closing the digital divide. And we get a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer over time. But this is really our opportunity to actually do it and accomplish it. Sometimes with technology issues, it's clear that Congress or members of Congress don't really get it. Do you think they understand fundamentally this issue and why it's so important? I think they do. I think they do. Every senator has a rural part of their state. So that's, that's one thing right there. <laughs> Every senator has a constituency that is coming to them every day saying, I need broadband, I, either because I can't afford it or because I don't have access to it. I need programs that help people understand why it's important. I need to convince people why they need to be using it. So I think they do. And this one, it's, it's not as complicated as some of the other issues that Congress is dealing with right now, right? It's everyone knows now, particularly post-COVID, why broadband is important. Everyone knows that you have to invest some attention and time and commitment from the US government to solve the problem. I think you know, there's a lot of you know, discussion and conversation around how you do that. There are different priorities. There's different you know, political affiliations around some of those issues. But in general, there is, I think this law shows, there was a strong commitment to, to making a big change. And they put, as you mentioned, a big sum of money towards this, inevitably more is going to be needed, right? Do you have a guesstimate on how much more investment we need from the federal government? Well, I mean, hopefully this does it. I mean, $65 billion. Really? that will be, will solve the problem? $42 billion of it is going towards the, the deployment issue. Like, can we get it available everywhere? I think that's, that's a lot of money. I think, you know, part of it depends on how it's implemented. Part of it depends on whether we make the right choices about how to spend the money, and where we put it, who we choose to serve, things like that. So there's a lot of important gating issues, but we're pretty much through the process and, and you know, we're encouraged. What do you see as the remaining barriers to getting over this digital divide? 
I think, again, implementing this program in a way that makes sense, I think, will be really important to get us there. You know, there are always going to be these very remote areas where it's really hard to build, say, a fiber network to, or it's really hard to put a cell tower up. So we may need to think about how we serve those areas. Like, do we use satellite services? Do we sort of have other kind of solutions in those areas? But we're pretty close. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we wanted to have this, this event and why I wanted to be here is this is exciting for those of us who've been working on this issue for a long time. It's exciting because we are really poised to make a big difference on how our country um, prepares for the next 20 and 30 years. There's a lot of discussion about global competitiveness and how can the US really sustain its leadership position and technology and, and globally, economically, and broadband access is the way to do it, making sure every citizen has access to it and can take advantage of it. We haven't really addressed the regulatory side of things. Are the regulations where they need to be for the industry to make the progress it wants and needs to make? I think there are always changes that we, there are always ways that we can look at regulation as the industry and technology evolves. So the wireless industry is a good example. Extremely competitive environment right now. You have multiple companies that are competing every day for your business and offering really high speed high quality networks. And some of the regulations were put in place, you know, at a time when that wasn't the case. So I think there are always things that we can do to update regulation and make sure that the industry is really powered in a way that it needs to be so we can serve customers and solve some of the problems that the country has. Final question. The biggest opportunity here, what do you, how would you define it? Our biggest opportunity really, I think, is the, is the ACP, is to make sure that we, we keep a program in place, whether we change the structure or whether we tweak some of the numbers, but we keep a program in place that really helps those people get access to broadband who really can't afford it. If we have a significant percentage of people who aren't online and who aren't participating in our democracy through broadband, I think uh, that's a missed opportunity. Kathleen Grillo, Senior Vice President of Public Policy and Government Affairs for Verizon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you all. And we're now going to hand it back to the Washington Post. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Well, good morning and welcome back. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Editor of the 202 Newsletters here at The Post. And I'm joined on stage now by Drs. David Goodcross and Neil Sicka, here to walk us through the opportunities and challenges with telemedicine. Good to see both of you this morning. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, Dr. Dr. Sega, let's start with you. Um, can you just basically lay out for us what are we talking about when we say telehealth? Sure. I, I think about telehealth as really kind of a big, a big umbrella for how we use information communication technologies to enable healthcare. Um, and under that, I think about three different um, kind of categories. So one is telemedicine, which is what we're most familiar with. That might be a virtual visit uh, with your doctor, or it might be services that are move from one location where it may not be available to another. For example, a telestroke service into a community hospital that doesn't have a neurologist available. And then I think about remote patient monitoring, which is using technologies at home to capture data, potentially send that data into your doctor, let them look at the trends of that data, and then uh, make changes to your care. And then the third I think about is mobility. 
uh, whether that's mobile health apps or mobility of patients and using wireless technologies to help us connect patients um, to the healthcare system. And of course, we just came through a pandemic, which um, was bad, but good for telehealth. Um, Dr. Goodcross, can you talk a little bit about that, how you saw the pandemic change your own use of telehealth um, and, and sort of what you see broadly speaking in terms of usage now? Sure. I was someone who was not a telehealth fan prior to the pandemic um, because I was not someone who thought that it, it provided the same level of feeling and that you would get the same outcome. So um, I was reluctantly dragged into, into using telehealth. And it has been a boon for, for my practice and for our, our patients, certainly. Um, if you don't have to worry about um, transportation or if you can just, on your lunch break, go see, a, see someone, a therapist in your car, it's a lot easier and a lot more, it frees the access. It also allows p folks from across the state and the region to, to get care, the specialized care that they need. Have you, and I, I what can you characterize for us, you know, what percentage of your visits roughly now are telehealth or virtual versus in person? Sure, I would say about 98.5% of our, our um, I could probably count on one hand the number of, of clients who've been to our, our office. I think it's been really convenient for folks um, to be able to see their provider in the comfort of their own home or car or workplace or whatever. I want to talk really briefly about payment for telehealth, and I don't want to get too in the weeds here, but of course during the pandemic there were more flexibilities in Medicare for reimbursement, and some of those flexibilities will be going away over the, over the next two years. Uh, any thoughts about that, uh, where we need to get to in terms of doctors being reimbursed for telehealth? Sure. Um, and either of you can take that. <laughs> I'll start, I guess. Um, you know, I think patients need to start thinking about Telehealth is just part of getting care, and so it needs to be seamless. It needs to be considered, uh, you know, we need to be able to provide services to patients where they want it, when they want it, how they want it, and they should think about it as a continuum so we can use telehealth to um, help patients make the best decisions to either they need, when, for when they need to get in-person care. So to enable that, we need to think about reimbursement as part of that continuum as well. And uh, we need to make it simple, both for patients to understand that they have coverage for a visit that might happen virtually, and we need to make it simple for providers to not have to navigate a patchwork of um, complexity uh, to know that they're going to reimburse for services they provide virtually. And Dr. Goodcross, isn't there some, there's some new law in Maryland which has to do with reimbursement? Well, certainly, yeah. Maryland has always um, allowed for telehealth visits to be paid at the same rate as, um, as an in-person visit. And it requires that um, Maryland, uh, insurance companies based in the state provide that at parity, right? So that's, that's always been a boon. And it's, it's kind of, it depends on, on the, if you're talking about commercial pay payers, it depends on the, on the particular payer. So our local, you know, Blue Cross affiliate does that and some other national um, chains have, have always um, uh, sponsored uh, telehealth. Okay. And when you see, so when you're thinking about your own practice, um, have you seen a new population of patients who will now get a therapy session through telehealth, whereas maybe they wouldn't have before? Absolutely. So um, our, our practice focuses on, I, I like to say that we, we center the marginalized. So our, our populations tend to be people of color, um, LGBTQIA folks, um, and also we work with a lot of neurodiverse, uh, neuro neuroexpansive folks and neuro, neurodivergent folks. So <clears throat> what telehealth has allowed those folks to do is to get the specialized care that they need. So we see folks from 
Frederick to the Eastern Shore in Maryland, right? And they never have to come to their office and they get a provider who really understands their unique experience, um, the, their symptom presentation, and can provide really specialized targeted care and intervention to help ameliorate their suffering. And Dr. Sika, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the barriers that you're seeing in terms of patients maybe using apps or, or just fully using the range of resources we have. What do you see with your own patients? And then what are you trying to do in terms of educating them to use these portals, to use these apps? Sure. Um, well. You know, we, we try to use technology to engage with our patients. I think many practices, um, well, almost all practices have electronic health records today, and they have extensions for their patients, which are known as patient portals. And so the patient portal gives uh, the patient control of their healthcare data. It allows them to see, um, you know, the notes. It allows them to see their lab results. It may allow them to schedule an appointment or um, to uh, request a medication refill. But I think one of the big barriers here is that there is a digital divide. And so while we know that um, a significant uh, amount of our patients have access to mobile devices or computers, tablets, uh, et cetera, they may not possess the skills to actually navigate those um, portals uh, or other healthcare applications that they may want to use. And so uh, we consider that you know, there's, there's kind of health literacy challenges we have with the patients and engaging in their health. And then we have um, digital literacy challenges, how they use um, their devices in day-to-day -day services that we've talked about today. And then um, there's really specific digital health literacy. How can they enable the technology they have in their pocket today to be um, leveraged to manage their health or improve their health and, and, and simplify their, their health care management. Yeah. Well, speaking as a patient myself for a minute, I feel like when I'm using these, these apps and I know how to use them, I go to them regularly, they're great. But I can see where the barriers come in or the frustration can come in for patients because, you know, you'll have all of these apps. Say I've got, you know, my portal, I've got my kids' portals, you know, you've got maybe different passwords for all of them. Uh, I know I was sharing earlier, I have three kids and I have to go into a different login for each of them to look at their records. And it can be really easily, I think, overwhelming for people if they don't know how to use this. Are there things that we can do to make it easy, just easier to use these apps, to maybe integrate them? Um, Help people remember their password, that's a whole other issue. But what, what can we do to make it you know, seem less you know, insurmountable to, to really integrate all of this? Yeah, well, some of the work we're doing is really one-on-one -on -one coaching, trying to help individuals um, and identify the skills they, may, they might lack or that they want to fill a gap in and teach them how to, how, to, uh, how to navigate their device. I mean, often we put the device in front of you, we think it's completely intuitive, and it's not necessarily. And uh, you know, once you, once you learn a basic skill, you gain confidence, you want to learn another skill, and then you become more comfortable using your technology. I think you know, we've learned from talking to patients that um, we need to make it simpler for them. Sometimes an app is actually, actually too complicated. Um, you know, one of the big barriers that no one thinks about is that you have to put a credit card into the app stores to be able to download a free app. Mm -hmm. And so that's a big barrier to encouraging a patient to download their application because they may not want to put a, give a credit card to, um, to their iOS or to the app store. So that's one. And then the second is meeting them where they are, which is often on text messaging. So SMS is a great vehicle to reach patients. Um, there's ways to uh, you know, manage uh, privacy for patients um, using SMS. But I think that's a space that could really be explored. And who do you think needs this? 
digital literacy or who's lacking it the most? I mean, what initially comes to mind for me is I guess I assume older folks might have a little bit of a harder time and younger folks easier time, but maybe it's not that simple. What do you sort of see? And let's go to you, Dr. Goodcross. Yeah, I, I would say that your assessment is correct. <laughs> um, I think in our <laughs> practice, I think that the folks who have had whatever challenges have, have been older, like our, our, our younger clients tend to be digital natives, so they can do all the apps better than the providers, but, uh, but our, our, our older patients struggle a bit. But I do think <laughs> that um, just the fact that you're a digital native doesn't mean you know how to leverage health technologies Indeed. to manage your health. Indeed. And so we need, to, we need to make sure that we don't kind of take that for granted, that, that the digital native will suddenly pick, them, pick up the device and manage their health. They need to be taught as well. I want to throw uh, one, I don't know if it's a criticism or just one concern that I've heard about telehealth is this idea that if you make it, it's, it would be possible to make it too easy in a way to reach out to your doctor where then you could encourage overutilization, where maybe people who don't need to talk to their doctor might do that and take up time that the doctor needs to see other patients. How, have you heard any of those concerns or how would you respond to that? Is that a concern you have at all or no? And let's go to you, Dr. Seca. Okay. Um, you know, I, I don't think that's a concern. I think, you know, um, we have to give patients the tools to get care when and how they want it. And um, think about telehealth as just in that continuum of care. So they may start in a telehealth visit and then move into an in-person visit. This was a similar fear we had when we saw the growth in, in retail health clinics like Minute Clinics and other services, you know, in, in your community pharmacy. And I don't think we've seen that overrun of utilization. We've given patients more convenient access points to engage with the healthcare system. And we know that frequent, you know, instead of seeing your doctor once a year or once every five years, you know, seeing and being connected to the healthcare system, I think over time actually reduces cost, improves care, um, helps you better manage your health. Mm -hmm. And I know, Dr. Goodcross, so you're, you're a psychologist, and we know that counseling seems to be one of these really, really, really ideal uh, spaces for, for virtual visits. Um, yeah. <laughs> but um, are there other areas of medicine that are particularly conducive to, to virtual visits or telehealth? Could, I'd love to hear from you and then from Dr. Sika. Sure. I mean, <clears throat> well, I, um, our patients often use um, telepsychiatry for a provider as well, um, and that is really convenient because, um, particularly for younger folks, because there's a, certainly a, a child and adolescent psychiatrist shortage, um, and it allows folks to see people outside of the, um, of the region. So that's one, one population that comes to mind off the top of my head, but I'm sure you have a few more you want to list. Sure. I mean, we've seen that at GW as well, that our psychiatry practice has moved virtual and a significant percentage of our patients want to, uh, uh, to get their care online. I think there are, um, you know, Telehealth can be interspersed in a lot of different um, places and a lot of different types of care. Primary care is a great one to be continuously connected. You mentioned diabetes, so seeing in your endocrinologist is another great place. Um, we've seen, I think, our headache clinic has used a lot of telehealth to manage uh, migraines and other complex headaches. So um, any place that is, um, from, a, from a clinician's perspective, a lot of cognitive care, where taking a history is a really important component of making a diagnosis, is very ripe for telemedicine. When you have a procedure, it may be uh, telemedicine might be at the front end of that, preparing for some type of a procedure and on the back end for follow-up. So it really can be integrated into the continuum, but it may not be appropriate for every single component of the, of the care. Do you have any requirement that patients see you in person first, say they're a new patient, 
would they have an in-person visit and then virtual, or do you do you see that as important, or is that is that sort of less important to the overall overall care? Well, um, previously the 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 laws uh, for psychologists in Maryland said that your your first um, session has to be in person, but then the COVID pandemic happened. So I think we're trying to figure that out. I, I don't know that I would. If you asked me three years ago, I would have said absolutely, but I don't know that we. I can see any. Um, much more data that we would collect um, that we wouldn't know um, through tele te telemedicine. I would say that you eventually gather the data that you need, right? It may not be at the beginning of the session. So for example, in a, in a therapy visit, I'm looking not just at, at your, you know, I'm listening not just to what you say, but I'm looking at your you know, your appearance, I'm looking at your, you listen to your prosody, I'm looking at, at your posture, I'm looking at your eye contact in a different way than I, than I would be able to look, look at in using tele, telemedicine. So it can take longer, particularly for our clients who are um, neuro, neurodivergent to, to ascertain that, but I don't know that we've missed it, I would say. So I think it, it may um, protract the, um, the evaluation period just a little bit, but I think um, the convenience more than makes up for it. Oh, that's interesting. And uh, Dr. Sika, what, how does prescribing come into this? I, I thought there was some rule about seeing a patient in person before a prescription could be issued, but then the pandemic, I know, changed some of the rules. What is that like now? Do you, can you issue a prescription just Yeah, it, it, it depends on the state, whether okay. a virtual face-to-face -face visit establishes a doctor-patient relationship, which allows you to prescribe. So if you can do, um, in many states, you can do a face-to-face -face visit that does establish that uh, criteria, and then you can prescribe. There are more restrictions on prescribing uh, controlled substances in place. Um, just on that note, wanted to bring in uh, a topic which, of course, has been in the news a lot, and that is the legal challenge to the abortion pill, Mifepristone. That's all happening and winding its way through the courts, but um, I know the Biden administration has said it won't uh, enforce a requirement for women to see a doctor in person to get the medication. Uh, any thoughts, Dr. Sick, on what that means for abortion access in our post-real world? It's hmm. a complicated question. Um, you know, in the emergency department, we, we see women all the time who uh, may have some type of a healthcare emergency, and I think telehealth allows us to evaluate and determine where they might need to seek care. Um, so telehealth could be a component of helping women decide what's the safest approach for, some, for them to seek the care they need. And I also want to ask you about a program you were involved in a few years ago that supervised the treatment of wounded contractors in Iraq. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what it taught you about telemedicine? Sure. We, we do a lot of remote and austere telemedicine, and, and actually that reflects the fact that telemedicine is not new. Um, it's just changed with the technology and our acceptability, our, our acceptance of using technology for care. So um, starting back in 1989, actually, we, we developed a, a program to support mariners at sea uh, in doing maritime telemedicine, and that's extended to other remote and austere locations. So as we have... Um, bases and then uh, services being provided in the armed forces, there are often parallel services provided for contractors and we're able to supervise either physicians or um, advanced practice providers who are on the ground uh, providing services as reach back for them. Um, and Dr. Goodcross, um, let's, so we've talked about, you know, kind of where we've come from. Where would you like to see us go in the future? Um, like, 
I guess the first, I guess the first part of that question is, um, you know, we saw this dramatic increase in telehealth use during the pandemic. Do you think we're going to stay there now as we emerge from the pandemic? Are thing, are are, are we going to see some retreat in in some areas back to the way it was before, or do you see this as kind of a steady march toward? Uh, increased use of telehealth. Yeah, I think I think that we will continue to see um, an increased usage of telehealth. I um, <clears throat> I think one of the things that that um, the dearth of providers um, allowed um, the the free market to do is to swoop in with like um, app based telemedicine or, or telehealth. Um, programs. And I think what I would like to see us do as a profession and as a as an industry is to to have more quality control, right? So when you when you're talking to um, someone in my practice or me, right, yeah, I am licensed in three states and you know I I know what I'm talking about. I'm an expert, right? I when I'm logging on to some mobile site I may not get to talk to the same clinician all the time, right? And what we know is that most of the change in therapy happens because of the relationship, right? So if you're not developing an ongoing relationship with a provider, then I don't know that you're getting the full benefit. So I would like to see more quality control. I would like to see more um, kind of evidence-based in that way in in terms of um, the ways that telehealth is being provided. That would be really good. I think that's a really good point because I think, you know, Technology can be great, but if we're not implementing it the right way, it doesn't fix a lot of the systemic problems we have in the healthcare system. Absolutely. Um, Dr. Sick, I'd like to hear your thoughts on that as well. Um, where do we need to go from here? What needs, what are, I mean, what are the top things that, you, that need to happen to A, implement telehealth, and B, really make sure that people are, um, as Dr. Goodcross said, using this to improve their relationship with their provider, really feel connected to the provider. Because as you say, at the end of the day, that's the thing that really matters and it's gonna make people more engaged with their health. Yeah, I think the, um, well, we've seen telehealth spike during the pandemic, something like 80% of visits were in telehealth. And now they've come down across the board, not, not necessarily in psychiatry and psychology, but in, in other areas. So we're looking at maybe 15 to 25% of visits are now in the telehealth uh, done virtually. So how do we, uh, we, we need to continue to educate our patients and educate our providers as to how to provide these services. Some of the work we've done through the American Association of Medical Colleges is to develop competencies for our providers so that doctors, residents, medical students are getting training um, to provide good quality telehealth services. And then how do you integrate that longitudinally over you know, your care model? So whether that's in a value-based care model or a fee-for-service care model, you have to be able to provide patients those options and understand where telehealth is a really useful adjunct to your care and where they need to be brought in in person. Well, we're just about out of time and we'll leave it there. Uh, doctors uh, David Goodcross and Neil Sika, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.